science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. I'm Joe Schwartz, and when I'm not here chatting with you on Sunday afternoons, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we try to demystify science for you. Make sure that you're uh, uh, well apprised of what is happening in the world of science. We try to separate fact from myth, sense from nonsense. And of course, uh, try to introduce you to some history of science and uh, try to tantalize you with some interesting stories. Let's uh, start with one of those right now. Back in the 1960s, one of the hottest shows on television was the Beverly Hillbillies. It was a sitcom and the plot revolved around the Clampets, a poor backwoods family from the Ozarks who became wealthy when oil was found on their land. And they moved to Beverly Hills, where their simple lifestyle really conflicted, sort of in a comical way, with that of the swanky locals. It was a great show. I really liked it. And one of the episodes was Granny's confrontation with the authorities when she was accused of contributing to smog because she was brewing up her lye soap out by their mansion's cement pond, which is what she called the swimming pool. Well, at the time, I was already interested in chemistry, so the episode struck a chord with me, and it spurred me to look into lye soap, an investigation that triggered really a a lifelong interest in the chemistry of uh, cleaning agents. Well, let's get the classic legend about the discovery of soap out of the way. It was not discovered by Roman women finding that clothes washed in the Tiber River at the foot of Mount Sapo turned out especially clean. The oft-repeated story has it that this was due to ashes from sacrificial fires on top of the hill being washed down into the river by rain. Fat from the animals being sacrificed dripped down into the ashes and formed soap. A captivating story but there is no record of any Mount Sapo around Rome, nor any evidence of Romans using soap. And uh, the word soap uh, does not come from the Mount Sapo legend. However, there is some scientific substance to the myth of the ashes and the fat from animals. Ashes from a wood fire have residues of potassium hydroxide. That's a form of lye and it does react with fats to produce soap. But what are soap? Soaps are long molecules, and uh, actually, chemically speaking, they're salts of fatty acids. And one end of the molecule dissolves in oily materials, while the other is attracted to water. So the soap molecule kind of forges a link between fats and water, so that rinsing with water pulls greasy soil from surfaces, and you know the soil is generally embedded in, in grease. So this can be on fabric or it can be on skin. 
The ancient Babylonians were already aware of this phenomenon as early as 2800 BC. How do we know this? Well, we got some evidence from descriptions uh, on um, old cuneiform tablets where they describe a slurry of ashes and water to remove grease from raw wool before dying. Of course, they didn't understand the chemistry, but the alkaline ashes reacted with the natural grease on the wool to produce soap, which then helped to rid the wool of oily residues. Now that had another effect as well. Soap serves as a wetting agent. That's a class of substances, also called surfactants, that increase the spreading and penetrating properties of a liquid by lowering its surface tension. The tendency of uh, its component molecules to adhere to each other, that's what surface tension is. And uh, if you want a, a sort of an example, uh, if you've ever seen uh, insects walk on water, uh, that's because uh, the water can support them because the water molecules are so tightly held together. But should you put uh, a drop of soap into that water, the insects will sink because this, the water then becomes, uh, has a lower surface tension and it spreads much more easily. Anyway, this, this idea of uh, reducing the sur surface tension is especially important when dyes have to penetrate a fabric. And so that was the sort of the accidental finding in, uh, by the Babylonians that uh, treating a fabric with wood ashes uh, then enhanced the ease of, of dyeing. Anyway, soap making as a craft did not appear in Europe until around the seventh century. And that was made possible by methods found to more easily extract potassium hydroxide from wood ashes and uh, sodium hydroxide from burnt seaweed. And uh, when we use the term lye, it can refer either to potassium hydroxide or to sodium hydroxide, both of which are strongly alkaline materials and can react with fats to break them down and form salts of fatty acids. <clears throat> Italy, Spain, and France were early manufacturing centers because of the availability of olive oil, which made for high quality soap. Production was still limited by the difficulty of extracting lye from ashes or seaweed, and that made salt expensive. Furthermore, the truth is that cleanliness in Europe was not next to godliness, and soap was not a widely sought commodity even among the aristocracy. Indeed, Queen Elizabeth I is said to have bathed only once a month, and King Louis XIV of France supposedly took only three baths during his whole life. But mercifully, they did use a lot of perfume. When Louis did wash, he was apparently very particular about the soap he used. It had to be Savon de Marseille. That was produced in Southern France. Indeed, in 1688, the king introduced the so-called Edict of Colbert, a set of regulations that limited the use of the name Marseille to soaps made only from olive oil, no animal fats, no fragrances, no color used. Interesting, huh? Because these days, the sort of the natural movement uses all these kind of expressions of what is not added to a product. Anyway, the pivotal point in soap manufacture was a process discovered by French surgeon Nicolas Leblanc, who developed an interest in chemistry. 
he found that treating sea salt with sulfuric acid produced sodium sulfate, which when reacted with limestone, that's calcium carbonate, yielded sodium carbonate, commonly called soda. When this was combined with calcium hydroxide, also called slake lime, the product was sodium hydroxide or lye. And once lye could be readily produced, soap manufacture took off. Unfortunately, the Leblanc process was not environmentally friendly, to say the least. It released copious amounts of hydrochloric acid and smelly sulfides into the air. Fortunately, in the 1860s, Belgian chemist Ernest Solve found a much cleaner way to make soda, and hence lye, from brine and limestone by using ammonia as a catalyst. The Solve process is still in use today, and it is the key to soap manufacture. Of course, Granny would not have purchased lye. She would have made it the old-fashioned way by extracting it from ashes. And to make her lye soap, she would not have used olive oil. She would have used possum fat. The Clampets were fond of eating delicacies like grits and possum gravy. Now, we've cleaned that story for you. So you have some idea of what soap is all about. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I mentioned earlier that uh, one of our tasks here at the uh, Office for Science and Society is to uh, demystify science and especially quackery. And there's a lot of that about. Uh, well, what is it? Uh, basically, it's a pretense of having uh, knowledge, usually in, in, in the health area, that someone does not have. And uh, the traditional snake oil, of course, was a classic example. Uh, when uh, patent medicines way back in the late 1800s and early 1900s supposedly contained snake oil that was to be a remedy for arthritis, it really didn't do anything beneficial, and hence uh, any ineffective therapy has been called snake oil. And there are many uh, snake oil products, many kind of snake oil uh, therapies. Let me talk about one which I think does fall into that category, although I'm sure there will be some people who will argue about it um, because they will claim that they have benefited from this uh, treatment. I'm talking about something called craniosacral therapy. You should have your head examined. We've all heard that expression at some time after expressing some thought that was uh, perceived as being ridiculous. Of course, usually that is not meant to be taken literally. Nobody believes that, that uh, ignorance or stupidity can be diagnosed by physically examining the head. But there are people who believe that various medical conditions can be diagnosed in this way. In fact, not only diagnosed, but treated. Now, this is where craniosacral therapy comes in. This rather unusual regimen can be traced back to Dr. William Sutherland, an American osteopath who practiced in the first half of the last century. Osteopaths believe that physical manipulation of the skeleton can alleviate many health problems. But Dr. Sutherland added a further twist. 
he contended that manipulating the bones of the skull was the key to curing illness. Why? Because such manipulations would affect the functioning of the cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that surrounds the brain and the spinal cord. Sutherland noted that this fluid pulsed rhythmically and somehow concluded that changes in the natural rhythm cause disease. These irregular pulsations could then be corrected by gently manipulating the bones of the skull in order to alleviate restrictions on the flow of the cerebral spinal fluid. Sutherland was promptly labeled a heretic and a quack by other physicians, but received strong support from many patients who claimed that a variety of health problems resolved with craniosacral therapy. And what does modern medicine say about this? Pretty well that it's all bunk. The bones of the skull are not amenable to manipulation, as Sutherland and his later followers claim. They actually fuse during infancy. While it is true that the cerebrospinal fluid does pulse, this is actually related to blood flow, not to any mysterious force. Indeed, the whole idea of craniosacral rhythm cannot be scientifically supported. When different practitioners are asked to measure this supposed rhythm by placing their fingers on a patient's head, they come up with vastly different craniosacral rates. This isn't surprising since they are trying to measure something that doesn't exist. Then in response to their measurements, they apply specific manipulations to the skull and claim to be able to help chronic back pain, autism, asthma, learning difficulties, fibromyalgia, host of other conditions. That, of course, is already a red flag, because when all of these conditions are claimed to be treated by one modality, chances are that there's nothing to it. Practitioners also claim that their skull manipulations are preventative and can bolster resistance to disease. They report that patients who have regular craniosacral adjustments feel more energetic and happier. The greatest proponent of this therapy was Floridian osteopath Dr. John Upledger, who passed away in 2012. If his skull manipulation didn't work, he had other approaches. A patient who was over-anxious could have a diagnosis of having excess energy. But what do you do about that? Treatment involved having a toe grounded with a copper wire to a drain pipe in order to let the excess energy flow out. In one case, a lady was tethered with a 30-foot copper wire so she could still whirl about the house as her energy was drained away. Well, what can you say about something like this? <laughs> I'm tempted to say that she should have had her head examined. But cranial therapy is relatively modest relative to some other types of silliness. For example, boring a hole in your head. And there are people who believe that that can be a treatment for all kinds of conditions, including mental disease. Boring a small hole through the skull is what they claim is magical because it somehow relieves pressure inside of the head. Uh, once again, this is just fanciful thinking, but amazingly, some people have actually done this. There is even a hole in the head society where they discuss such things about how to do it. 
And there are even some, you know, YouTube examples of, of, of some crazy people trying to, to drill a hole in, in, in their head. It's hard to believe some of the stuff that people will believe, but there are hole-in-the-head advocates who claim that ever since they did this, and of course they bore a hole just through the bone of the skull, not having the drill go into their brain, one would hope, uh, and they claim that this this hole somehow just makes them uh, better thinkers. Uh, of course, uh, one would argue against that. If you, hardly can you be called a, a good thinker if you're doing such things. But of course, they claim that they benefit. Uh, I guess one could also call upon the placebo effect in, in this kind of an instance. If you believe that some sort of uh, measure is going to be uh, beneficial for you, the belief itself can be beneficial. I mean, we've talked about this many times in the past, the so-called placebo effect. And uh, uh, the more invasive a placebo effect is, the better it seems to work. So for example, placebo pills will work. You know, you give someone a sugar pill, you tell them that this is a wonderful new medication, whether it be for arthritis or something else that is symptomatic. And very often they will tell you that their symptoms have gotten better. However, if you give a suppository, that even works better as a placebo. And if you do an injection of something, that is even better than a suppository. It just seems that the more invasive a method is, the better it seems to work as a placebo. And let's face it, taking a drill and uh, drilling a hole in your skull is about as invasive as you can get. And uh, it's not surprising that some people will then claim that uh, they feel better. My advice, don't do it. Uh, leave your skull alone. Uh, if you want to try a placebo, and placebos work, even when you know you're taking a placebo, take a candy. Pretend it's a drug. It may work. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, I was talking about the placebo effect, and indeed is an amazing effect. But of course, uh, there are drugs that really do work. But even the drugs that works, you know, they, they do rely to some extent on the placebo effect. But let me tell you about uh, one of the most, if not the most popular drug in the world, and that is aspirin. Now, contrary to popular belief, aspirin does not occur in nature. It is not found in the bark of the willow tree. But there is a connection. Aspirin, chemically, it is acetylsalicylic acid, or ASA. It was first produced commercially by the Bayer Company, uh, and it was based on a synthesis by Felix Hoffmann, a chemist working for the company uh, in Germany. This goes back to the 1890s. While Hoffmann did indeed synthesize the first commercial sample of acetylsalicylic acid, as aspirin is known, of course, generically, he certainly was not the first to produce the substance in the laboratory. That honor goes to Carl Friedrich Gerhardt, who in 1853, at Montpellier University in France, made an impure version 
with an aim towards improving on the effects of salicylic acid, a commonly used painkiller. At the time, salicylic acid was extracted from the leaves of the meadowsweet plant and was used for the treatment of fevers and pain, particularly of the arthritic variety. But it had to be taken in large amounts. It had a bitter taste and often caused stomach irritation. Gerhard identified the molecular structure of salicylic acid and thought he could modify it and produce a better product. But he abandoned the project when he could not produce this acetylated version reliably. Well, how did salicylic acid come to be used as a pain reliever in the first place? That's a long and engaging tale. It all starts with a recommendation in the famous 3,500-year-old Egyptian Ebers papyrus about treating an inflamed wound with a concoction made from the leaves of the white willow tree. This makes sense in view of the fact that willow leaves and bark contain a substance known as salicin, which in the body can be converted to salicylic acid. Now, the willow tree we're talking about here is the white willow. It's not the one that you see with its branches hanging over water. Of course, not all of the prescriptions for the inflammation in the Ebers papyrus turned out to be as compelling scientifically. A poultice made from chopped bat or a portion of wasp's dung in fresh milk have not stood the test of time. I wonder how one isolates dung from a wasp. Anyway, uh, salicylate-containing plants, of course, have made a difference. Hippocrates championed the use of willow bark for the pain of childbirth, and the Roman physician Celsius described the treatment of inflammation characterized by redness, heat, pain, and swelling with willow leaves. The ancient Chinese, as well as North American Indians, knew about the special properties of plants like the meadowsweet. The true scientific era of the salicylates began in 1763, when the Reverend Edward Stone presented a report to the Royal Society in England about the use of willow bark in the treatment of fever. Stone was a believer in the rather curious doctrine of signatures, which maintained that cures could be found in the same locations that spawned diseases. Since fevers were often associated with swamps, probably because of mosquito-borne infectious agents, it was here that Stone looked for cures. He tasted a sprig of willow and was stunned by its bitterness. This was exciting because he knew that quinine, an equally bitter substance, was useful for treatment of malarial fever. So he decided to give willow bark a try. He tried, he tried a uh, dried, powdered version of the substance on 50 patients who had rheumatic symptoms. And they got better. The stuff worked. The search was now on to discover the active ingredient. By 1828, salicin, named after Salix alba vulgaris, the botanical name of the willow, was isolated and was shown to have a medicinal effect. Furthermore, it could be converted in the laboratory to salicylic acid, which was even more potent as a drug. It was around this time that Gerhardt became interested in solving the problem of bitterness and gastric complications, a problem that was eventually solved by Felix Hoffman some 50 years later. Hoffman's father 
had long been taking salicylic acid for arthritis, but he could no longer take it without vomiting. The chemist searched the literature for alternate forms of salicylates and came upon Gerhard's work. By this time, chemical techniques had been refined to the extent that he was able to make acetosalicylic acid in a pure form, and the aspirin era was underway. The name was chosen by combining spiric acid, as salicylic acid was originally known, with A for acetyl. The rest, as they say, is history. It should be obvious from the preceding that aspirin itself does not occur in nature, but similar, less effective substances do. Willow extracts sold in health food stores cannot compare with the demonstrated effectiveness of aspirin. In fact, aspirin came about as an improvement on the natural salicylates. Furthermore, aspirin's anticoagulant effect can be attributed to the acetyl part of the molecule, which is responsible for inactivating an enzyme that leads to blood clot formation. So there's no real point in chewing on willow bark to prevent a heart attack. However, there is certainly a point in chewing on an aspirin tablet if someone thinks that they're having a heart attack. There are many people today who carry around a tablet of aspirin in their pocket or in their wallet. So that should a heart attack occur, you chew on an aspirin. And if the heart attack is caused by a blood clot, the aspirin can reduce the chance that that blood clot will grow in size and collude an artery. Uh, there is no great risk in chewing on an aspirin tablet. So, uh, you know, if someone is, is having chest pain and it turns out not to be a heart attack because chest pain can be caused by many, many other factors, you know, I mean, it can be muscular or it, it can be acid reflux. Uh, I mean, indigestion, you can have uh, uh, chest pain. Uh, so if someone suspects that it is due to a heart attack and they start chewing an aspirin and it turns out not to be a heart attack, I mean, they've not done any, any great harm. Uh, you don't want to, of course, take aspirin on a regular basis to try to prevent a, a heart attack unless you're counseled to do so by a physician. And sometimes that happens. Once someone has had a, a heart attack or some other cardiovascular event, a physician may counsel them to take a small daily dose of aspirin, 81 milligrams uh, usually, to try to prevent the formation of, uh, of blood clots. But this is not something that one would take prophylactically if there is no reason to think that there's any kind of underlying cardiovascular condition because aspirin itself is an anticoagulant and, of course, can cause bleeding. And you won't take a chance of that. So it's always a question of weighing risk against benefit. So only a physician can determine whether or not someone should be taking a small daily dose of, of aspirin. Time once more to check traffic. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You know, I get asked a lot of questions, either by email or, or on the show or by, you know, telephone during the week. Many of them prove to be interesting and kind of, you know, get me to start uh, looking into some, some issue. And uh, I had a question about a product called Just Eggs. I've seen this advertised, but I've never uh, I've never tried it. Uh, 
uh, is an interesting story. Uh, of course, today, plant-based diets are all the rage. And there's no question that they do have benefits. I mean, if you know, if if instead of uh, buying all kinds of processed foods, if you're making your own vegetable soup, your ratatouille, your grilled vegetables, uh, yeah, you're on the right track because you'll be consuming less fat, less salt, less cholesterol than a meat-based diet. But when it comes to foods fabricated from plant ingredients that aim to replicate the taste and texture of animal products, the story can be different. For example, the popular Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger, uh, these are very much advertised these days and I think they sell very well because they are advertised as being plant analogs of regular hamburgers and the perception is that therefore they are healthier. However, when we take a look at the components here, turns out that they do not offer any significant nutritional advantage over a beef burger. Uh, in fact, while they have the same amount of saturated fat, they have roughly four times as much sodium. Yes, the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger have about four times as much sodium as a hamburger that you would make at home. Now, it is true that they don't contain any cholesterol, which is found only in animal products. But the 100 milligrams or so of cholesterol that you find in a hamburger is not going to have an impact on your blood cholesterol. The cholesterol issue is played up even more uh, when it comes to egg replacements made of plant products. And this is what we're talking about now. The question that I was asked about this product called Just Eggs which to me seems pretty inappropriately named because uh, what does it not have? It doesn't have any eggs. So what is this thing made of? Well, it has a collage of mung bean protein isolate, canola oil, dehydrated onion, gel and gum, carrot extract, that's put in there for color, uh, something called natural flavors, we're never quite sure exactly what those are. Turmeric extract for color, potassium citrate, soy, uh, soy lecithin, sugar, tapioca syrup, tetrasodium pyrophosphate, transglutaminase, and niacin, which is a preservative. Doesn't that just make your mouth water? Anyway, what does this not have? Cholesterol. And eggs, of course, do have cholesterol. The yolk of an egg contains about 300 milligrams of cholesterol. But again, let me point out that blood cholesterol is much more a function of saturated fat in the diet than of preformed cholesterol. The American Heart Association has no issue with five to seven eggs consumed a week. A real egg does have a touch more saturated fat than a serving of just egg but the latter has three times as much sodium. Sodium, of course, is a problem because it can be a contributor to high blood pressure, that's hypertension. Also, eggs are a very good source of vitamin B12, which is not found in plant products. So basically, health-wise, there's not much, if anything, to be gained by replacing beef burgers and eggs with their plant-based mimics. Admittedly, where there is an advantage is in the uh, environmental footprint of the uh, non-meat products. 
Animal agriculture uses more water, more land, more fossil fuels, more pesticides, more synthetic fertilizer, as more greenhouse gas emissions, there are greater transportation costs, and uh, there are more problematic uh, issues with manure and antibiotic residues, you know, when you're talking about animals. But if you really want to support the environment and reap some health benefits as well, then orient yourself towards a proper plant-based diet. And that does not have to include expensive egg or meat mimics that don't taste like the real thing anyway. You can, of course, cook up real uh, vegetarian or vegan meals. And uh, then you will be really contributing to, to the environment. And of course, also, you'll be saving some money when you uh, uh, cook at home. And it certainly is possible to have a totally well-balanced diet relying only on plant products. Of course, you have to have some idea of what it is that you're doing. When you know one is recommending, uh, you know, trying a vegetarian diet, we're not saying to to have, uh, you know, uh, macaroni every day. Uh, you still want to, you know, uh, balance it. And, and there certainly is is no problem with getting enough protein. And a lot of people think that that you can't get enough protein from a plant based diet. That's not true. I mean, legumes like like soy uh, certainly contain uh, protein, and we don't need as much protein, you know, as 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 people think. I mean, the average person needs only about fifty grams of protein a day, and uh, uh, that is easy to get from a vegetarian diet. <clears throat> well, let me tell you one uh, final little story here today, and it's about the stormy petrel. And the reason that uh, that comes to my mind is because I've been watching a TV show called Shetland uh, on BritBox. Uh, it's a great detective show. I, I mean, I, I really love those British detective shows. But anyway, the Shetland Islands uh, now are famous because of that program, but they also have been famous for sheep and wool. But did you know that they're also home to the stormy petrel? This is an unusual bird so named because it was thought to appear before a storm, and it has a very high fat content. Fat, of course, is an excellent fuel. It burns readily to produce carbon dioxide, water, heat, and light. Islanders used to catch the creatures, dry them, fix their feet in clay, and thread a wick through their beak. Then they would light the wick and burn the dried bird for illumination. The Danes did this also with the great auk, a bird that has since become extinct. They inserted a wick into the dead bird's belly and burned it. The less macabre were satisfied with burning whale oil. Well, aren't you glad electricity came along? And that, of course, helps you watch Shetland on TV. And that's it for today. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. We will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, hope all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.